Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Connected. I am your host, Kyle Van Pelt, CEO of MileMarker, and today I have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, he needs a little introduction, but for those of you who don't know who he is, he's a chief behavioral officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. He's a repeat best-selling author with books like The Laws of Wealth and Behavioral Investor. He also loves all things tweed. He loves all things Filipino. And uh, for some reason, he loves the St. Louis Cardinals, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in this conversation. There's many facets to you, but did I miss anything in that introduction? No, that's all the good stuff. That's the... <laughs> The last, it's all the, the last place Cardinals are the yeah. good stuff. What a turnaround for them this year, huh? Yeah. Yep. But in the wrong way. Yeah. Not a, not a great year, but we'll, we'll get to no. that. Yeah. Are you okay with that? I mean, again, I know you're the, you're the psychologist and everything, but I, I wanted to start by just asking, like, how does that make you feel? I mean, I feel broken, Kyle. Like, I mean, it's like, I look, <laughs> I look forward to baseball season all year. And I mean, the Braves, the Braves are my second favorite team. So the Braves being as incredible as they are is helping a little bit. But I mean, yeah. I look forward to baseball season all year and the Cardinals are reliably competitive. And this year they have been a train wreck and it's not, it's not great, man. No, it, it, and it's, it, it's weird again, as, as baseball fans, it's not like a lot changed about their roster. They have all, almost all the same players from last year. I mean, it's like, they've just had a collectively almost a year long slump for all of those guys, you know, returning all-stars, good pitchers, all of that stuff. Like it has just been, it's, it's psychology dare, you know, dare I say there's a, there's, Oh, come on. No, there's a huge element. There's a huge element of psychology. Cause like you said, they return, you know, whatever 90% of the team that, that won the division last year and, and they're in last place. And I, I think there's a huge element of psychology to it. I think there's like team, you know, culture stuff, team development stuff. The, the team kind of went off the rails early in the year when the when the manager showed a lack of confidence, sort of publicly threw a beloved player under the bus. I mean, uh, mm. all that, you know, all that stuff's real. Yeah. Well, that's actually that's good. I, you know, you took that an angle I wasn't expecting. Um, well, I have, you know, I, I have a hammer, Kyle, and I see nails everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's a psychology problem yeah. to the doctor. Yeah. Yeah, you and I both have the unique experience of of not being core Braves fans, but both living in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, uh, watching that. But I, I don't think a lot of people know. So you're from Alabama, mm -hmm. um, but you're a Cardinals fan. So how did you become a Cardinals fan in the first place? Yeah, so I, my grandpa grew up in the middle of nowhere in Texas before where there were Texas teams. And the strongest radio station, the only radio station that could reach his little dusty little part of the world was KMOX out of St. Louis. And so my grandpa grew up on a ranch in Texas, a big Cardinals fan listening to the games every night on the radio. 
My dad grew up in Monterey and Carmel, California, a big Cardinals fan, going to see the Cardinals play the Giants. And then, you know, when you're from Carmel, California, the next thing you want to do is move to Alabama and raise your kids there. And so I... (laughs) I grew, <laughs> I grew up in Alabama. I've actually never been to Monterey. Um, and I grew, what? yeah, isn't that terrible? I grew up in Alabama, a Cardinals fan. And we would, my dad would take us to, to Braves games and uh, I would want to get a tomahawk or a Braves hat and stuff. And my dad was like, absolutely not, you know, no son of mine kind of thing. I'm a little more flexible with my kids. I'll let them, I'll let them cheer for the Braves. Well, and I think it's easier, too, when you live here, right? And yeah. then when they're, they're as good as they are right now, it's like it's hard not to get caught up in it. I can't. See, you're different. You're you're a Cardinals fan, so it's NL, you know, National League and National League. I'm a diehard Phillies fan, which is in the same division as the Braves. So I'm like, you know, living amongst our rivals all the time and watching all of these people just celebrate and be happy. Uh, it's You know, so you guys can can enjoy it a little bit more than us. Yeah, you know, when people ask me about the Cubs, they're like, you don't really hate the Cubs, do you? And I'm like, no, from the bottom of my heart. Like, you know, like all the way, all the way hate, all the way hate the Cubs. Like the whole organization, everything they stand for. Great city, love to visit, hate the Cubs. So I totally, totally get it. We'll get into some more, you know, work stuff too. But one thing I actually don't even think I knew this about you when I was doing some research. So you're, um, you know, I think I saw somewhere that that you and your wife love to frequent comic book shops. Is that is that true? Do you guys like to go check out comics? No, my wife is far too pretty to love comic book shops. But I take my kids. <laughs> I take, I take my kids. Oh. Uh, I'm going to get fired. Um, I take I take my children to comic book shops. So, so this was a this was a tradition that really started when we lived in Alabama. There was a really good one. In fact, far better than we have here. You know, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is kind of like nerd central. You know, everybody's a rocket scientist. Everybody works for the space program or missile defense. And so there's sort of a strong like geek subculture that's that's part of Huntsville uh, that I, you know, that I really embraced with my kids. And so we have zillions of comic books here from from many uh, daddy daughter, uh, especially daddy daughter dates to, to the comic book store. Mostly My Little Pony. Oh, OK, I was going to ask, is there like a specific comic book, you know, like uh, series or things that you guys were pretty into? Did you find one through these these experiences or? Yeah, so I'm a ba- I'm a Batman guy. Like I have a lot of Batman graphic novels. I like Batman because he's everything that I aspire to be, which is sort of tortured and rich, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I but, you know, seriously, I, I always really did like Batman because it's just like. You know, Spider-Man, like, oh, you get bit and now suddenly you can, you know, you have superhuman powers. Like Batman's just running strictly on neurotic energy and billionaire status. And I really, I really love that about him. So I'm a Batman guy. And then my my daughter's like my little pony. Well, I mean, my 14 year old doesn't anymore. But when she when she was a kid, she liked my little pony. All right. So pivoting a little bit to talk about some stuff. I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about behavioral finance a little bit. If people want to know your thoughts on on like the best ways to to take care of your behavior, they can check out your books. You have several of them. But one of the things I want to talk about is there's lots of discussion. It feels like in our industry for for, you know, what's seemed like a long time about, 
you know, how behavioral finance is kind of the next frontier, like, you know, all of the alpha is out of asset management and all of that. And one of the best ways to do this is behavioral finance. But I'm curious from where you sit, like, do you think that has been pretty adopted across the advisor community? Or do you still think that it's like people are just talking about it, but it's been hard for advisors to adopt as a concept? So I think the enthusiasm is real, right? Like, I think the acceptance of behavioral finance relative to where I started 13 years ago when I you know, first started talking about these things. Oh, that was depressing to say out loud. But, you know, with. <laughs> When, uh, you know, relative to 13 years ago, when I first started talking, I, re- I won't name names of this large financial organization. That was my first stop to pitch sort of my behavioral finance consulting services to. And I'm like, okay, here's my pitch deck. And like, here's what I do. And they're like, behavioral finance, this is not a thing. I mean, they were literally like, this is not real. You know, and I'm like, no, it's, it's real. Like, here's the research. And like, here, and they're like, this is not a thing. Uh, and they ended up hiring me eventually, like years later. But, you know, uh, at first it was like, this isn't even real. So I think the enthusiasm is real, but I think the adoption has been, been uneven because real adoption takes a couple of things that we're, we're just really starting to see. And it's really baking behavioral finance into the process of an advisor's every day. You know, that's what we're trying to do at Orion, like really put behavioral finance on an advisor's desktop and sort of embed it within every part of, of, of her day. And so that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do at Orion, because I think if you look at the, this is depressing to say as someone who writes books and speaks largely for a living, if you look at like recall, we forget 90% of what we learn in three days, if it's not reiterated or personalized or applied. And so I think for many years, you know, there was a period of time where behavioral finance was so new. Then the enthusiasm around it grew, but like people like me would go to a conference and speak about it and people would go, yay, this is great. We want it. And then by the weekend, it's gone. I think the the enthusiasm for it has never been greater. Like even this year, it has felt like something shifted and the enthusiasm has been really great. But I think the way that we take it next level is by tools and technology that can sort of exist on, on an advisor's laptop or desktop. What do you think was the inflection point for the enthusiasm? Was there something that, was it a study that came out? Was it just you out there, you know, banging the drum with other people? You know, because I know there's a couple of other people who bang this drum, but what do you, what do you think was the, that inflection point? Um, I, I, think, I think if you really break it down, it all comes down to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping. No, uh, of course not. I think there's two things. I think one thing is the research is just really compelling. We're doing an event tonight and I'll just give a sort of a, you know, a preview of coming attractions. Schwab just came out with a, with some research from their, you know, volumes of data. They found that people who were intention, intentionally and explicitly using behavioral finance practices in their, uh, in their practices last year had three times, 3.3 times the wallet share capture of those who didn't. So they got three times more assets from existing clients than people who didn't. 
you know, Merrill Lynch did a meta-analysis, which is a study of all the studies uh, about seven years ago. And they looked at all the things an advisor does. Everything that an advisor does is additive, everything from product selection to asset allocation to tax alpha and all these things. Like it's all additive, but sort of the blocking and tackling stuff, like I just mentioned, adds about 30 to 60 basis points of value per year. The behavioral stuff they found, again, this is a study of all the studies. You just compile them and average them. The behavioral stuff, stuff like client assessment, understanding your client behavioral coaching, they found that this stuff added 65 to 244 basis points. I mean, and I could kind of go on and on. Like there's just there's just a, a body of research now that shows that this is what advisors do best. And this is where advisors add the most value. Uh, that's, I think, probably the biggest driver. I think the second driver is self-interest. I think that in a world where asset management fees are constricting, uh, in a world where active management underperforms more consistently than it performs, I think good advisors see that their value proposition is shifting just from sort of a practical and a marketing standpoint. And they know that investors have access to, to data and education more than ever. You're dealing with a savvier and savvier investing populace. And your trading and other stuff has been completely commoditized and disintermediated by technology. And so I, I think that behavior is sort of the last stand of the advisor. And, it, and, and frankly, it's not going anywhere. I think if you look at like what AI does well, what tech does well, it does speed and precision and wrote stuff well. What it doesn't do well is selling and connecting and empathizing. And so I think behavioral finance is and will continue to be kind of like the last holdout of advisor value and its significant value. Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack there. And I love kind of that last comment about technology being great at speed and precision, but, you know, humans are inherently, you know, imprecise and messy. I mean, we can we can think and feel something one day and then the very next day have a completely different mm -hmm. thought or feeling or you change your mind or all of that sort of stuff. So it's hard for AI to figure humans out and help us make sure. And that's the value of a lot of this behavioral finance stuff is as people are going through those swings of emotion and thoughts and feelings, it's like, how do you keep them on the yeah. track, right? I mean, at, at its core, that's the idea. You talked about like bringing tools to the desktop, but I guess one thing I also want to talk about is for some reason, a lot of our conversation centers around advisors and people who run firms focusing on their highest and best use of time. And I'm curious for you, is behavioral finance something that every advisor should aspire to kind of become quote unquote fluent in, or should they hire somebody on staff who it's like they, they are focused on installing behavioral finance in client service or relationships or things like that. Ultimately, the question is, should every advisor try to figure out how to do this as a competitive advantage? Or should every firm just try to figure out how to implement this in a centralized way? Yeah. So I think, you know, right now, I don't want to leave anyone out, but there, there aren't many firms that have someone like me on staff, Orion, Betterment, one or two others. There's not a ton like in the, in the financial space. Now, I think you're going to see that change. I think that the big tech firms will all have that. And you start to see that in telehealth and other places. 
you know, even marketing, a lot of times they have behavioral teams on staff, public policy, NGOs have have been quicker to sort of accept and, and integrate behavioral science quicker than finance has. So I think you're going to see that. And I think it's going to trickle down. And I think you would even see like large regional RIAs, I think eventually have someone who was something more or less akin to what my job is. I don't imagine that ever trickles down to like smaller, smaller advisory firms. But that's honestly fine. One of the things that, you know, I, I analogize it to when my kids were little and we were trying to get them to eat vegetables and you would have to do some stuff like mash up broccoli and brownies or whatever, like, you know, blend up black beans and brownies or whatever, like just kind of sneak it in there. And, it, you know, at, at the risk of infantilizing our clients, I think that that's one of the things that we kind of have to do a bit. Because Morningstar and others have done really interesting research on basically when you when you come in through the front door, right? When you come in from the front door and you ask clients, what do you love about working with your advisor? Where do you find value? Response is like, they help me manage my emotions are always way at the bottom. Like they're always way at the bottom. But when we look at the research around where advisors add value, we know it's way at the top. Natixis did a study a couple of years ago, and they looked at where advisors added value and, and where clients thought they added value. 83% of advisors said they added value through behavioral coaching. That was the number two, number two answer uh, in terms of the value they added. 6% of clients said that was a value add. So six, right? So the difference between 83% of advisors and 6% of clients because nobody views themselves as this catastrophic screw up that's just bumbling through the world, right? Like nobody's like, oh, you know, hand to the forehead. Like, I, oh, advisor, thank you. I came to you because I'm so, you know, I'm so flawed and hopeless. You know, this is not how people think about themselves and their money. But the answers they give about what they value are implicitly behavioral. It's stuff like, you know, listens and communicates with me, helps me reach my goals, helps me articulate my goals. Well, that's all behavioral finance too. I look forward and I've written about, I look forward to the day, like I have a seven-year-old, you've got young kids. I, I hope when my seven-year-old goes to college, there's no behavioral finance course per se I hope that behavioral concepts are just woven into the fabric of finance. Like sort of the, the artificial separation of the two is a little silly. And I think like over time, we'll, we'll get there. That I think is really insightful, to, you know, even as it makes me think about the question I asked. It's like, oh, well, should they learn it? No, it's like it, should, it shouldn't be a, whole, a separate idea at all. It should just be how people deliver advice. And then to your point about how the tools and AI and technology happens, you should have more time and energy to be able for that to be the focus of your advice because technology should hopefully be streamlining, to use a buzzword, you know, the, the efforts um, for advisors on the you know, all that data collection and all of the things they spend time on now. So that's, that's a good point. I like that. Pivoting away now from, from that, um, I wanted to ask you, so you've written a handful of books. A lot of people know you for Laws of Wealth, Behavioral Investor, but there's a couple of people, you know, other people don't know. Um, I'm curious, like, do you have one that you're like sort of most proud of or, you know, one that you, you still kind of look on fondly and you're like, oh, I really, really love that book or, you know, 
um, one that you would pick as a quote unquote favorite? Yeah, the the laws of wealth in the behavioral investor are the best known because they are the best. I have written other books. I try not to talk about them. I'm not proud of I'm not proud of them. Uh, no, those those are the two best. I mean, it's like I had kind of I self published a book early on, which is actually I think it's free. Like I think it's called it's called You're Not That Great. I think it's free, like the electronic version. Yep. Um, it's actually it's actually uh, okay. Like it's actually pretty good. It's not as well edited as I would have liked. You know that that comes with a bigger name publisher and all that. But yeah, it's it's worth what you pay for it. I just finished a book uh, called The Soul of Wealth. I got to say that's the one that I'm. I, I think I'm going to look back on as being my most proud work. I sort of learned to unmire myself from the specifics of like stock picking strategy and asset allocation. When you look at my books, any bad, they're, they're both very well reviewed and I'm, I'm very happy for that. They both won awards and I'm very happy for that. But if you, you know, if you look at those two books, any of the bad reviews that they have, we got to be honest, they're from Bogleheads. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was on the Bogleheads podcast. Shout out, shout out to Rick Ferry. Very big podcast. Was very honored to be on it. And look, I'm a huge proponent of index investing and, and I love Vanguard. But, you know, I went on there and people, I guess, liked my appearance, went and bought the book. I, I tried to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of active and passive management and I, look, there's trade-offs both ways, right? They did not like that. So the, anyway, the soul of wealth is about money, purpose, contentment, happiness, as it intersects with money. You'll, you'll never hear one thing about quality, momentum, value, stocks, bonds, nothing. It's sort of going to be the, the crown jewel, I think, in the sense that it takes everything that I've learned about this stuff and put, uh, puts it together in, I think, a really readable format. So it won't be out for like a year, but I, I'm super excited for that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that too. Can't wait to read it. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this too, because I think everybody's got a different style. So writing a book is no easy feat. I think many people have tried to do it and, and failed and, and you have completed several like what is the, and by the way, you've sort of always had a job, you know, or things going on and you've got a family and all of that. Like, what is your process for being able to actually get, you know, a book from idea to print? I mean, that seems like a really daunting process and would love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Okay. So this is, I love this question. No one's going to believe my answer, but here it goes. This is my unbelievable answer. So if you look at the soul of wealth, it took me like two months to write that book pushing 300 pages. And it took me like two months to write that book with a job, right? <laughs> with, a, with a job and a family. It took me probably two years to outline that book. That to me is the hardest part. So here's what I do. If a chapter is going to be, if a book is going to be whatever, easy math, 200 pages, it's going to be 10 chapters long. You got to figure out what are the 10 themes you want to cover in your book. And they got to be interesting and there needs to be, you know, sort of a through line and they need to be independent of each other, but there needs to be some sort of unifying through line. That takes a long time to figure out. Now, once you've got your 10, you've now got to go research each of those 10 concepts so you can sort of understand the universe of ideas that lives beneath each of those 10 concepts. Okay. 
So what I would do for a 200-page book is come up with those 10 themes, read, 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 study, study, study on each of those 10 until I have sort of the universe of ideas that crystallizes beneath those. And so for each of those chapters, I'm going to have five subchapters. So now you've got sort of 50 component parts of your book. And then what I do is I write four pages a day for two months. It's, I mean, it sounds easy. It takes forever though. Like, but it's, it's so, it's so front loaded though. Like none of my books have taken me more than three months to write. But by the time I start writing, I had 80 pages of notes. Like, did, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, Oh, hundred yeah. percent. I had eight, when I started writing the soul of wealth, I had 80 pages of notes and citations and links to studies and things like that. So the whole time you're using this framework as a lattice work uh, and you're reading and, and kind of just pinning stuff to, to that lattice work. In, in a weird way, my mind goes to there, there's almost the compounding effect and even how you you write books, right? It's like it starts slow as you're trying to figure out what all of this is. And then it just snowballs and gets, you know, faster and faster as, you know, towards the end. So when you actually have to write the book, all the compounding has happened. The hard work has been done. And I think, too, that's like, you know, how do you define writing? Yeah. Is it actually sitting there and typing the four pages or do you count the two and a half years of putting together the outline, putting together the notes, all of that sort oh, of stuff? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because I mean, it's been five years since I wrote a book. You know, there was probably a couple years after I wrote a book where I just didn't have anything new to say. The behavioral investor sucked up all my best ideas and you got to like go put some new ideas in. It's all writing. But then at some point you've got to write it. You know, I'm a big believer in when do you become a writer or a runner or a painter or whatever? Like, well, when you start writing, running and painting, you know? So I think a lot of people want to forever stay in that, you know, preparatory process. And yeah, it's important too, but you're, you're, you're a writer when you start writing. So last, last question on this subject, but you know, you said, Hey, it's been five years since you wrote a book, like that sucked up all your good ideas, but I know you had ideas through that, you know, through that period, et cetera. I guess the question is kind of for you, you know, how do you go, oh, that's actually something worth kind of like digging into like that. That is an idea worth putting the two and a half years of effort into. And is it is it an inspiration thing where it kind of takes you or, you know, do you have some sort of process of, oh, that that's good. That's worth a book. That's worth the effort. That's worth, you know, investing in. Yeah. This. So it has. So it has to be something that you're passionate about for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, the process of writing two, 300 pages on a topic is grueling if you don't love it. So, I mean, there's just sort of a functional reason. Then you're going to spend another 18 months promoting it. So like, do you want to be talking about these lame ideas? Like, you know what I mean? If you're not, if you're not pretty bought in, you're going to, you're making a pretty rough bed for yourself to lie in, but it's got to be, it's got to be original. And I mean, that's, that's really difficult. You've got to spend some time with other people's ideas and, and find out where you can add something to the world. I've read stats that like 80% of people want to write a book, right? Even though a small fraction kind of get around to it. But it's got to be something that, that people want to read. And I tell people, people are always coming to me trying to get introduced to a publisher. And I've introduced many people to my publisher. And I say, you've got to think about this like a business because that's the way that they think about it. So there has to be some mix of passion and practicality. Like, do I love these ideas enough to invest years of my life in, in researching and promoting them? But also, is anyone going to give a darn? 
because, you know, a book is a business and not a very good one unless you're Morgan Housel either. But, you know, <laughs> shout out, shout Morgan, out Housel, Morgan Housel, psychology. Shout out Morgan Housel. Good job, dude. And I think that's it, right? It's it, it, There's probably some level of internal conflict of, hey, how much of this is just because I think this idea should be out in the world and it's something that I'm passionate about putting out there versus, hey, I think this is a good business. Like, I think this is a book that will be well-read, that people will will take. And, you know, it's probably the difference between a hobby you spend a bunch of time on and something that's actually worthwhile money-wise. <laughs> the, the other thing that's absolutely invaluable in this process, whether it's just a really honest friend with their thumb on the pulse of, um, you know, the, the industry or an acquisitions editor in my case. I'm feeling kind of inspired right now. The the writing, I'm, I haven't soured on writing. And so I, I want to go ahead and start my next one soon. And I ran two ideas by my publisher this week, yesterday. I got their feedback back. And one of them, he's like, this is excellent. Like, you should do it. And the other one, he's like, <laughs> I'm going to quote him, British guy, overwrought and excessively academic don't pursue it i'm like okay i well and i think you would appreciate you know excessively academic that's like right up your alley right but i think you know to your point of a book is a business how many people in the rest of the world would appreciate excessively academic yeah no that's uh, the thing yeah uh, you might have to save that for you know the you know the, your your aspirational days of becoming a professor. Maybe that'll be the textbook. That, no, right? That's a great uh, plan. I'm going to write that book and then charge kids six hundred dollars to buy it for my course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you got to update it every right. year, right? Just go in and change a couple words, and they need the new Perfect. version. Perfect. <laughs> that's my retirement. I wanted to ask you a question. So you you actually posed this question on Twitter, and I loved the question. I wanted to turn it back around on you. So you. You asked on Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays, uh, mm -hmm. Elon's world, which city people had been to that they thought had the nicest people. So what would your answer be to that question? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you the reason I asked it. If you take out COVID, right? If you take out sort of the worst of COVID, my family has spent whatever, four of the last five summers somewhere else. And that's something we really like to do, go see different parts of the country and the world. But the last two summers, we've been in, in Southern California, right? And so I was talking to my kids. I'm always trying to mold them into being little mini psychologists. And I was like, what are the cultural differences you've observed in the people in Southern California versus the people in uh, Alabama, where their grandparents live, Utah, where their other grandparents live, Georgia, where they live? You know, I'm just like, what sort of what have you observed? And they had some really thoughtful answers, some things they liked, some things they didn't like. And so that's that's kind of why I posed the question, because the deep south and southern California don't share much in common culturally. And, you know, some I, I mean, points points for each side sort of on, on different variables, I think. But, um, yeah, it was it was sort of a good exercise for them. So the nicest places that I've been, I think New York City is a sleeper pick. I think New York City has some of the nicest people in the world. I'm a simple redneck. And so I did not go to New York City until I was 23 years old. And I remember being in New York City at 23. It was my graduation gift. Me and my dad went to New York. And I remember we got way lost on the subway. We ended up somewhere we shouldn't have been. And we were trying to figure out where to go. And we were like stopping, trying to stop people on the subway. Like, excuse me, could I talk to you for a second? Excuse me, excuse me. And no one would stop. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. We look like we were like 
scamming them or something. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we, weren't, we weren't going about this the right way. But once you kind of get past that, I think New York City has some of the nicest people around. I mean, I think the South's reputation for warmth is well earned. Uh, and I think the Midwest has some extraordinarily kind people as well. So I'm going to give it Midwest. Nice, yeah, I'm right? going to give it to I'm going to give it to the upper Midwest, the deep South and New York City. I love it. And then you had another one or it, this wasn't a question so much, but you said, find someone who loves their city and let them show you all the best parts. Like if you're trying to and, and I think this comes from you traveling a lot, all of that sort of. But if somebody came to you with that, which which city would you show someone and what parts would you show them? Would you choose Atlanta? Would you choose Huntsville? Would you choose, you know, some some place else? Like how would if somebody approached you, which city would you show them around and what would you? Yeah, show them? so uh, we'll do a couple of cities. So. This was, again, driven by a specific event. So my friend Max, who is a, an advisor, uh, we went to L.A. And my daughter is a huge Elliot Smith fan. And Elliot Smith died in L.A. And, you know, his most of his career was there, there in L.A. And she's just absolutely obsessed with Elliot Smith. And so Ma Max picked me and my kids up one day, took us all around L.A. and showed us, like, this is where Elliot Smith played his first show. This is where the mural was painted that was on his second album. This is where he died. This is the liquor store he's singing about in this song. I mean, it's just like on and on and on. And then he took us around and showed us all these different things. And I had been to LA a, a zillion times, right? Like, I mean, I've been to LA many, many times, but it, it was transformed by him showing us around Alex Chalakian showed us around the night before. My buddy Jonathan is an improv uh, comedian and showed us his improv stuff. And like, we just got to see all these parts of LA that we have never would have never seen on our own. So if someone were to come to Atlanta, we're going to go best sporting event, best food and best like local attraction. So for the sporting event, I'm taking them to an Atlanta United game because I think that I think that the fervor of Atlanta's soccer community would surprise most people. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. right? No, it's, it is. I mean, because again, you would think, I, I love that you answered that that way because people would think it's Braves or, you know, it's, it's a Hawks game or Falcons or something. But Atlanta United, is the energy, everything about that atmosphere is like inherently Atlanta. Like it's not like a different culture that came here. It is Atlanta, but it is passionate and it's so much fun. And I think people would, would be surprised at how fun yeah, it is. No, it's incredible. I mean, you got 75,000 people on their feet the whole time screaming the banners and the flyers that sort of integrate Southern culture with soccer culture, like European soccer culture are so cool. So Atlanta United is my sporting event. My sort of cultural thing is I'm going to take them to the Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's probably the most moving. Only the Holocaust Museum compares when it comes to just sort of a moving museum going experience talks about not only the fight for civil rights in the Deep South, also the struggle for, for broader human rights throughout the world that persists to this day. Incredibly moving, some interactive exhibits. I won't spoil anything, but just really a, a fantastic sort of cultural marker there. And then for food, I'm taking them to Kamayan ATL. Kamai is the Filipino word for hand. And so Kamayan is where you spread out banana leaves on the table, pilot high with rice, barbecue, fish, spring rolls, everything. And you and your crew just go to work with your hands on this like mountain of food in the middle. 
And, you know, Atlanta isn't historically known for being a huge epicenter of Filipino immigration. But, you know, Kyle, it's so cool. They had the first Filipino fest in Atlanta this week. And I drove down there. It took me forever, right? Drove 45 minutes to get there. And it was so crowded. I got turned away and I had to go home. I mean, the cops were like sending people away. It was unsafe. It was so crowded. And so I was like kind of disappointed, but in a cool way, (laughs) kind of heartened and disappointed at the same time. So I think Kamayan showcases the diversity of Atlanta. It's a fantastic place and, uh, you know, something that I love. So that's my three. Huntsville, I'm taking them to the taco bus. It's an old school bus that got turned into a taco truck. It's amazing. I'm taking them to a trash pandas game the greatest name in minor league baseball. And, and I'm taking them to Low Mill uh, Art Center. Low Mill is a giant, used to be a cotton refining factory. Then it was like a shoemaking facility during the Vietnam War. It's enormous. And they've turned it into an art center. And they rent out like little stalls, like little rooms. And artists from all over the city can rent them for next to nothing. And so you can go walk through literally hundreds of working artists who are there painting, drawing, knitting, crafting, and you can see their stuff and buy it. It's just, it's such a fantastic like maker's market and uh, really, really cool. So shout out to Huntsville, the greatest city in Alabama. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, I love those answers. I think too, just on on our side, like uh, I used to be really against touristy things, and I think it's because I grew up in Orlando, like right in the shadow of Disney World, and was like really disenfranchised with like what like people did as touristy stuff. Um, and so I think I was just against that for the longest time. But as we've become adults and started traveling more, we've we've done more quote unquote touristy things, and if done right, they can be incredibly you know entertaining, educational. So like you know one example is when we went to Seattle. Rather than just go into Pike Place Market, we had like a tour guide take us through to a bunch of different stalls and shops. And it was maybe the highlight of the trip, you know, and, and some of these things. And so I think what you're also talking about is a, a place can truly be brought alive to you if somebody knows how to, to show you like its true character. Because there's also something to this huge trend right now of like every city becoming algorithmically the same, right? All the coffee shops mm-hmm. look the same with their industrial lighting and reclaimed mm-hmm. wood, right? And the, you know, everything is all Instagrammable. So you don't know whether you're in Columbus, Ohio, or you're in, you know, New York City when you're inside these buildings. But what makes those places unique is what you're talking about. Somebody who's like, no, we got to go to the old bus that was turned into a taco truck, or, you know, we got to go see a trash pandas game. Um, or all of those sort of things. So I love that question and I love your answers yeah, to the, it. This is like a big soapbox of mine and it's it's something that I used to do poorly. I'm trying to repent of like my past behavior because I used to be too cool or something. Like I used to be like, well, this city's good. I don't like this city. This city's a cool city. Oh, I got to go here. Now I've sort of learned with frequent travel that every city's awesome. Like every city's awesome if you tap into the right people and the right communities. And there's something unique and different and worthwhile about every place you'll ever go. And I think when you approach it with that mindset, because, you know, look, being from Alabama, like when I 
when I tell people that, some people are lovely about it, of course, but there's a like good chunk of people who are like, like, you know, make, you know, like, ooh, what? And, you know, making rude comments and stuff. And you're like, no, that's such a, that's such a small minded perspective. And I mean, it's one that I had for, you know, for, for, for a time. And so I think when you, when you just say, who can show me the best parts of this place? I think you, you'll just be a lot happier. I think that's a great place to end, man. Um, so this has been an awesome conversation. You talked about uh, your book, The Soul of Wealth, which is coming out sometime in the future. But anything else that you kind of want to shout out or talk about here uh, while you have the Oh, mic? yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, go check out the podcast. Standard Deviations is the name of my podcast. Uh, and, you know, also for any advisors at Orion, we have a, an advisor academy. It's just called Orion Advisor Academy. And we offer free CE courses, largely on behavioral finance, to people, whether they're clients or not. So go check it out. Go get some CE. We'd love to teach you about this weird world of, of humans and money. I love it. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Fun conversation. And uh, I can't wait to do it again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.